Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Lily Gorn with the New Books Network, um, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today, it is my pleasure to host Josh Chavitz to discuss his new book, Congress's Constitution, Legislative Authority, and the Separation of Powers. This is a rigorous and detailed study not only of Congress, but of all three... Hello, this is Lily Gorn with the New Books Network. Um, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today, it is my pleasure to host Josh Chavitz to discuss his new book, Congress's Constitution, Legislative Authority, and the Separation of Powers. This is a rigorous and detailed study not only of Congress, but of all three branches of the United States government, and it includes some fascinating historical and political antecedents and analysis to help understand the allocation of power within the American system. But I will definitely let Josh explain those aspects of his book. First, I want to ask Josh to tell us a little about himself and how he came to this project, which he describes interestingly in the acknowledgments as coming to him or that he had been working on it before he realized he was working on it. Uh, hi, Lily. Well, uh, thank you so much for, for having me on. Um, so uh, my, my background is in uh, both political science and law. I have a, a PhD in political science and also a, a law degree, uh, although I teach uh, at a law school. I teach at, at Cornell Law School. Um, and where I teach uh, both constitutional law and uh, a course called legislation. I have this book as sort of something I was working on before I, I was aware that I was working on it, is that I had been thinking uh, since I was in grad school about uh, legislative procedure and uh, about legislative procedure in some sense as an internal matter. So my, my first book was actually a comparative study of legislative privilege uh, in the British and American constitutional systems. Um, and so I've been thinking about these, you know, a certain subset of, of, of legislative procedural issues as a matter of sort of how institutions, how, how, how the legislature does its own business. Um, and then at the same time, I was sort of increasingly thinking about the, this sort of dominant narrative uh, in, in uh, both the legal literature and the political science literature about sort of congressional fecklessness, this idea that uh, Congress sort of isn't what it was, that it sacrificed a great deal of its power, that it's sort of increasingly the, the third branch of three. Um, and it, re- it sort of slowly began to dawn on me that, that actually the two topics were, were sort of deeply connected, that in fact, these issues I'd been thinking about and writing about as internal matters uh, had a significant impact on the way that the legislature interacted with the other branches. Uh, and actually, in many cases, uh, served as sources of power uh, available to the legislature in its interactions, in its conflicts with the other branches, uh, but in ways that sometimes or, or even often uh, sort of uh, uh, flew below the radar so that they weren't uh, noticed and talked about all that much. Uh, so I'd sort of been thinking along those lines for a while. It had been sort of uh, popping up in, in various ways in um, in smaller pieces that I had written. Uh, and then I, it sort of became increasingly clear to me that this was uh, that this was a book project. And so I needed to actually... Uh, sit down and write it. 
and thus you did. And, and, it, and it, it's it's a really great book, and and Thank I you. I really learned a lot from reading it. Um, but I want you to talk to us a little bit today about the thesis of the book itself, which you've sort of given a little brushstroke to, um, and your approach to this question of Congress's constitution, and the question that you sort of pose with regard to its legislative authority, um, waxing and waning, and its capacities or toolboxes, sometimes that you call it, um, with regard to how it operates. Right. So I... um you know, be, because I come to this sort of thinking in terms of legislative procedure, what I actually uh, wanted to do when I when I came to think about its uh, the, the way that Congress interacts with the other branches is think about sort of everything that isn't actually passing laws, right? Because um, you know, when when people think about legislatures, not surprisingly, the first thing they think about is legislation, um, and if you're thinking in those terms, you're you're I think very likely to think that the legislature isn't going to really be able to flex its muscles in interbranch conflicts. And that's because, uh, of course, um, uh, uh, statutes are subject to the uh, presentment requirement, which means that the president can veto them. And as we all know, uh, vetoes are almost never uh, overridden. Um, uh, so statutes are a very difficult way to rein in uh, the president. Uh, statutes are, of course, subject to, to judicial interpretation and judicial review. So statutes aren't a very good way to to, to rein in the courts either. Um, so if you think in terms of statutes, first and foremost, you're going to have a fairly anemic conception uh, of congressional power vis-a-vis uh, -vis the other branches. Uh, so what I set out to think about was sort of all the things Congress does when it's not passing statutes. So this ranges from things like... Um, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of first uh, uh, chapter that, that really discusses a, a discrete uh, congressional tools on the power of the purse. Uh, and that, of course, is exercised via legislation. But what I'm really interested in is the withholding of funding. So whether that's uh, stripping out uh, sort of individual uh, uh, line items from, a, from an appropriations bill or whether that's actually shutting down the government um, uh, or threatening to shut down the government as a um, uh, as a sort of means of, of securing uh, collateral uh, compromises from from uh, other institutional actors. Uh, I'm interested in um, uh, congressional investigations and, and contempt of Congress uh, proceedings. Uh, I'm interested in um, what I call the the power of uh, the the personnel power. So this is uh, the uh, Senate's uh, confirmation power or refusal to confirm. Um, uh, as well as uh, sort of more rarely used uh, uh, procedures like impeachment. Um, uh, so those those are the things I sort of group under the heading of, of, of hard congressional powers, things that it can really use to sort of force its way with the other branches. Um, but I also think there are a suite of sort of softer congressional powers, things that it uses uh, to uh, primarily interact with the public, but in a way that bears upon uh, its power vis-a-vis -vis the other branches. And these are things like uh, it, it's, it's simply its, its power to communicate. Um, so the constitutional hook for that would be the speech or debate clause, the ability to sort of say whatever it wants to the public without worrying about interference from the other branches. Um, I also think we can think about congressional disciplinary power, its power to discipline its own members in this regard. Um, you know, one of the best ways to sort of demonstrate trustworthiness to the public is by uh, keeping one's own house clean. Um, uh, and then the last of the sort of soft powers I talk about is the power to structure its own uh, structure its own proceedings, the power to sort of um, uh, create its own internal processes in ways that can either build its institutional capacity or diminish its institutional capacity. So all of those are things that don't actually require buy-in from another branch and yet very much affect the balance of power between the legislature and the other branches. 
And and I wanted to follow up just in the terminology that you use to talk about the sort of hard power that that Congress has and the soft power. And you talk about this as a it's a, a sort of borrowed framework from international relations. Mm-hmm. Um, and so why did you take um, this kind of a framework to talk about the powers that Congress has when, you know, and as well, you know, because you are also a legal scholar, that there are so many constitutional evaluative tools that have been used to apply to uh, under our understanding of congressional power. Um, so I'm curious about, and, and I think it's a, it's a really good use of an understanding from IR, the hard and soft power, but could you explain you. that a little bit more? Sure. So um, um, as, as I'm sure a, a lot of your, your listeners will know, uh, it's, it's sort of most prominently identified with, with Joseph Nye um, and uh, with the idea that sort of in the international arena, uh, states have uh, both hard power, which is sort of the ability to coerce, whether that's using their military or using economic might, uh, and then soft power, which is sort of the ability to uh, attract, right, the sort of uh, attractiveness of your culture or of your values or of your ideals. Um, and the idea is that, um, uh, you know, uh, you want to be able to use both and that in many cases, of course, soft power will will uh, actually uh, get you sort of what you want at a much lower cost than than the exercise of hard power. I found these this in a sort of attractive framework because I'm interested. Um, you know, the, the the sort of basic framework of my book is thinking about uh, the separation of powers and thinking about Congress's relationship to the other branches as a matter of constitutional politics. So I'm not interested in the sort of narrowest sense in constitutional law. That is to say, there's not a whole lot of discussion of, you know, Supreme Court doctrine or things like that in this book. Um, In fact, to the extent that I talk about the courts, I'm talking about them uh, not as sort of neutral arbiters between the executive and the legislature, but rather as one of three actors contending for power um, uh, in this interbranch system. Um, So in that regard, it seemed to me to have certain analogs to the sort of classic conception of the international arena, a situ- you know, an, an area where there are uh, different actors with different levels of power sort of contending with one another, trying to pursue their interests and promote their agendas uh, without a sort of obvious, um, uh, uh, commonly understood arbiter standing above them all that can sort of enforce its will. Um, uh, so it seemed to me to be a sort of uh, uh, apt place to look for a framework. Uh, and then the framework of, of hard and soft powers, uh, I thought, sort of aptly described uh, the sort of uh, suite of congressional tools that I'm interested in. Some of them are actually sort of uh, clubs that it can use to beat the other branches, you know, impeachment or um, uh, refusing to confirm a nominee or, sh- you know, zeroing out someone's salary or, or zeroing out a program or shutting down the government. Right? Those are those are. Uh, you know, uh, uh, big sort of uh, Hard power. Uh, bludgeons. Yeah, exactly. Um, on the other hand, I think a lot of them uh, uh, deal with the way that Congress makes itself look good in public. Um, uh, you know, the way that it communicates with its public, uh, the way that it attempts to persuade the public, the way that it attempts to get the public on its side in various conflicts. Uh, and those seem to me to be sort of analogous to what Nye describes as a soft power in the international sphere. So I thought it was a, um, a sort of helpful uh, organizational schema. Um, but, you know, one thing I, I do try to say uh, in, in describing that schema is that I don't want to put too much weight on it. Um, I think it is sort of organizationally helpful, but I don't 
I don't take it to be a sort of a strong analytic claim that there is sort of these two distinct sets of powers uh, and sort of never the twain shall meet or something like that. Um, uh, you know, I think they exist on a continuum. I think there are lots of powers that have sort of elements of both in them. Um, uh, but I think it's sort of a useful way to sort of divide things up and as a first cut, think about them. And I think in a lot of ways, it, it also is a bit of a parallel to how we often think about the president and the executive mm -hmm. branch. And so that that it is also applied to the legislative branch, which doesn't necessarily speak in a uniform voice, um, but does have the capacity to, to do all of these things at the same time, I think is also useful. And I, I wanted to bring up a, a sort of a point that you also make um, that I was going to ask later, but it seems to be in context of this sort of understanding of this sort of theoretical or schematic framework. Um, you note that there's a question of no logical stopping point in the constitutional system um, as because there isn't necessarily um, an overarching arbiter, even though we often think about the judiciary and the Supreme Court in particular in that regard. But part of your argument is that if the judiciary is, you know, to some degree, a political branch like the other two, um, then there isn't a mechanism to sort of stop the constitutional system or make a definitive end point with regard to some of the debates that you sketch out. Um, and, and I think we see the current president possibly pushing on some of that <laughs> occasionally. Um, and so this question of no logical stopping point, I'd love for you to expand a little bit about how we should understand that in context of your research. Sure. And I, I think there's something um, deeply comforting on, on a sort of visceral level about the idea that at the end of the day, there's someone who's going to tell us what the right answer is, or at least sort of what lines can't be crossed. Um, and I think a lot of people's uh, – <laughs> I hesitate to use the phrase naive conception because I'm going to get in trouble for that. But <laughs> a lot of people's naive conception of, of law and of what courts do is that they, uh, you know, they sit atop the system and they um, they sort of tell us what lines can't be crossed. And once they've told us, uh, then that's sort of the end of the story. Um, uh, and and you know, on some level, there, there, as I said, there's something comforting about that because it means there's sort of uh, a sort of deus ex machina who's going to come in and make sure everything works out at least tolerably well at the end of the day. Um, that's that's you know that's clearly not not quite accurate, right? We've known for a long time, um, uh, first of all, that the that the the judiciary is not immune uh, by any means. Uh, from the the sort of uh, political pressures that that shape the decisions of the other two branches, um, and we've uh, uh, known uh, for some time that uh, uh, judicial decisions are frequently sort of not the last word. Um, now it is uh, uh, incredibly rare to see sort of outright defiance of a judicial decision, but it's not at all rare to see uh, institutions sort of s trying to figure out what wiggle room they have, trying to continually test and probe decisions, trying to sort of chip away at decisions. Um, uh, and so, uh, and to see that uh, over time being effective in, in, in many contexts. Um, so the idea that there's there's sort of this this uh, overarching adjudicator who will tell us where the sort of where the endpoint is, uh, I think is fanciful. And what that means 
is that when you have these uh, these contests between the branches, um, there isn't going to be a sort of uh, point that you get to and you can say, well, now we've answered that question. Uh, now we have a sort of definitive uh, account and we can just sort of accept that and move on even if we don't like it. Um, uh, I, we do get... But but to say that there's no logical stopping point, I think importantly, is not to say that there aren't sort of local resolutions. And and uh, politics is of course path dependent to a certain extent. So that means that those local resolutions very much sort of set the framework, set the groundwork for future political conflict. Um, but it doesn't mean that there is that they create a sort of capital P precedent that will tell us what to do the next time this situation comes along. That there's sort of Everything is open to sort of uh, renegotiation. Uh, uh, everything is open to being fought over again, uh, although never on precisely the same terms it was fought over before because uh, the political situation will be different. And part of the way the political situation will be different is that it will have been shaped by the sort of decisions that were made in previous conflicts. Um, so it's it's messier. It's uh, more polyarchic. Um uh, and and it doesn't come with that sort of comfort of knowing where it all ends. Um, but I think it is more true to our actual sort of lived constitutional experience. Which also goes to Hamilton's argument in 78 to some degree um, mm-hmm. that the, the judiciary doesn't necessarily have as much power as sometimes people might uh, uh, sort of suggest that it does. Right, um, I think that's right. Although I'm skeptical of Hamilton's argument in Federalist <laughs> 78 and its validity. Um, but that's another story. So as long as we're talking about Hamilton, let's talk about history. Um, you you use sort of the British parliamentary experience um, in the first part of your book to sort of get into a lot of the debate and, and dialogue that the states and ultimately the framers were having early on with regard to sort of the role of the the legislature can mm-hmm. you can you explain a little bit about um why that that sort of british history is really vital to understand in terms of setting up this tripartite system that we have in the united states well what i would say is i i'm, I'm interested in um uh, for sort of each of the 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 big um, congressional powers that I that I discuss in the in the book, um, I'm interested in sort of situating them within a sort of long developmental arc, um, and so for in most cases that developmental arc starts roughly at the the uh, beginning of the 17th century, um, and the the reason that I think that's uh, valuable, so you know. Um, First of all, I think it's important to situate things uh, to situate these powers within their developmental arc just generally, uh, because I, uh, you know, as I was uh, saying just a minute ago, um, it, at any given moment, the exercise of these powers is going to be very much shaped and constrained by the political context in which it's being exercised, and that political context itself uh, is a product of sort of all of the. Uh, uh, decisions and events leading up to it. So I don't think you can understand any of these powers uh, without situating them in their historical context. Uh, so then the question is, well, why why such a long time span? Um, and I think the, the the answer to that is that a lot of uh, the the sort of conflicts uh, that uh, arise both in the sort of period leading up to the uh, uh, creation of the American Constitution and in its aftermath. Uh, really sort of 
have their roots and were consciously looking back to conflicts between uh, the Stuart Crown and, and Parliament. Um, uh, and this is, uh, uh, you know, not uh, just my observation. A lot of um, uh, uh, eminent historians of um, colonial America have, have noted this as well. This is uh, Jack Green's point. It's also Jack Rakoff's point um, that uh, when the when the colonists in the the uh, you know mid to late 18th century are are sort of trying to think about what uh, uh, sort of historical antecedents they can call on, uh, what they wind up looking to is the parliamentarians uh, under the Stuart crowns, and and the reason is that their situation in some sense was more analogous to the situation of those parliamentarians than it was uh, to the situation of Parliament in uh, their own day. Um, by the the middle of the 18th century, uh, the sort of um, uh, you, you'd already had the rise of the principle of of, um, uh, of of ministerial responsibility to Parliament, which meant that the government of the day was comprised of the party that had a majority in the House of Commons, um, which which in some sense meant that people living within uh, Britain were uh, uh, sort of governed by. It, broadly speaking, um, uh, a government that was representative in that sense, uh, and that crown officers were representative in that sense. Whereas the colonists uh, had uh, both their governors and their um, uh, judiciary appointed uh, from London um, by the Board of Trade and by the crown. Um, so when they saw their uh, locally elected assemblies fighting with the royal governor or fighting with the royal judiciary, it looked more like uh, what they saw when uh, Parliament was fighting with uh, James I or Charles I uh, than it did uh, when uh, uh, than it did under under George III. So that's sort of they're looking back to that. Um, and in some sense, there's there's even a sense in which you can sort of bring that significantly forward in the sense that. Um, it's really, you know, prior to the Glorious Revolution is sort of the last time that you have uh, a, a crown government that has a source of authority that is independent of parliament. That is to say, it's it's a separation of power system that looks a little more like our own, right? We have a president who has a source of authority that is independent of Congress's source of authority. By the middle of the 18th century in the UK, or in sorry, in Britain, um, you had a, a, a crown government that owed its authority entirely to parliament. Um, uh, so uh, in some sense, looking back to the older model actually makes it look a little bit more like the model that the that, that, that gets created under the American Constitution. And I thought that point was really, really fascinating to explore in your, in your um, sort of analysis um, with regard to the allocation of authority or the the, the sort of granting of authority from different avenues um, within the colonies. And then once they became states, then they were trying to figure out how it would work um, when there wasn't a crown appointing, as it were. Um, and so I, I, I did learn a lot from your historical analyses of the, the sort of antecedents to the system that we have. So I also wanted to follow up with you because you, you know, as you do note, Initially in the book, you come into this sort of question of congressional hard and soft power through, um, as you set it up, sort of debates between the executive and the judiciary um, and, and sort of the back and forth that you note early on with regard to comments from Obama, um, with regard to what the judiciary is doing in a number of instances. 
and and I sort of wanted to sort of understand a little bit about how you came to this question of congressional authority, which is sometimes abdicated by Congress, often abdicated by Congress um, in a variety of periods, and particularly um, the latter half of the 20th century, um, and, and how you sort of got into this question of congressional responsibility and the power that they have to sometimes take it back um, from the other branches. Right. So I, um, so, so the, the, the book sort of opens with this, um, uh, with this sort of uh, table setting scene of the, the conflict between, uh, between Obama and the courts uh, over um, both uh, Citizens United decision, which he criticizes in the State of the Union, uh, and then also the sort of back and forth over the two uh, Supreme Court Affordable Care Act cases. Um, and the reason I open that way is that I think uh, it nicely tees up the sort of uh, uh, separation of powers dynamics that I want to describe. Um, so the the first, the book itself is divided into three sections, and the, the second and third sections of the book deal with these sort of um, developmental accounts and analytic accounts of these specific congressional powers that I've been talking about. Uh, but the first part of the book is uh, meant to be sort of broader separation of powers theory, the sort of overarching theoretical framework that the second and third parts will slot into. Um, and what I try to do with that sort of opening uh, table setting scene is uh, tee up the sort of broad dynamics of that account of the separation of powers. And in particular, I'm interested in, and this is something that's sort of been in the background of several things I've said so far, I'm interested in the the way that various sort of constitutional tools allow the different branches to make arguments to the public, that allow them to try to win over public support. And I see a lot of the conflict between the branches uh, as being fundamentally aimed at winning over the public to their branches' point of view on any particular in any particular conflict um and this i think is actually one of the sort of uh uh, major things that differentiates my approach to separation of powers from that that's found uh uh, certainly almost anywhere else in the in the the legal literature um uh, is that i really am focused on the way the branches interact with the public uh so i i um Uh, I I wanted to sort of open with a sort of scene that I thought really illustrated that well. And to be honest, I wanted to open with a scene that wasn't going to sort of steal some of the thunder of later chapters. So I thought that by opening, uh, by focusing on the presidency and the courts, uh, it it could sort of accomplish both of those things and also suggest the sort of generalizability of the uh, theoretical account that was to come, right? That it wasn't a specifically Congress-focused account of the separation of powers, but rather a general account of the separation of powers that I was then going to sort of use to talk about Congress in the second and third parts of the book. Which is which is one of the, the questions that I did want to ask you about in terms of the terminology that you use um, within sort of our understanding of the separation of powers. You use a term with regard to multiplicity-based separation of powers. Can you explain what you mean by that um, as opposed to other understandings of separation of powers? Right. So the the classic division of of or the classic sort of family groupings of separation of powers theories are into uh, formalist accounts and functionalist accounts. Right. And the formalist accounts sort of uh, uh, basically tend to focus on constitutional text, on the sort of structures that are created out of that, uh, uh, and to say, uh, you know, if we if we 
um, uh, sort of look closely enough at the text um, and, and at sort of the, the kinds of institutions the text uh, uh, envisions, we can sort of figure out which powers precisely are, you know, which decisions are meant to be made by which branches. Um, functionalist accounts tend to say, actually, what we should do is think in terms of the sort of um, uh, institutional design and the institutional uh, capacities of the various branches. So think in terms of, um, uh, you know, what uh, kinds of decisions a legislative body is best suited to make, what kinds of decisions an executive is best suited to make, what kinds of decisions courts are best suited to make. Um, my account, the sort of multiplicity-based account, uh, as I term it, is, is, is meant to sort of emphasize, uh, uh, is meant to be a sort of a third way. Um, it's, it's meant to suggest that, uh, uh, you actually, right. <laughs> I, you know, the, the, uh, I can't tell if coming up with a third way is, is the sort of holy <laughs> grail of accounts or the death knell of an account, but it's, it's meant to be, um, uh, something sort of slightly different than, than either of the two, uh, sort of dominant families. Um, and in particular, it's meant to emphasize the way that sort of the institutions, uh, uh, the, the sort of sources of authority multiply, that's why I use this sort of phrase multiplicity, that, that they overlap, that there's messiness, um, and that uh, the, the um, uh, way to resolve that is not by sort of attempting to strictly separate them out uh, the way either of the other two sort of major families do, whether by sort of um, focusing on, on constitutional text or by focusing on institutional competency uh, as a matter of institutional design, but rather to think in terms of sort of ongoing public politics between the branches and to think about the ways in which they're actually fighting for authority in any given moment. Um, so you've got sort of multiple actors out there in public uh, sort of battling with one another to try to sort of get the outcomes that they actually want. Um, uh, and that's, uh, uh, and, and the way that they do that by and large sort of over time is by winning the public over to their side is by winning public trust and winning public confidence. Um, so that's the sort of account, broadly speaking, of the separation of powers that I try to develop in the first part of the book. Which also means that the, the sort of approval rating or lack thereof for any of the branches, all three of the branches, are vital to our understanding then of the kind of power and authority that they may be able to exercise or not. Um, absolutely. And I, 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 um, I think that's absolutely right. I, I want to make it a little bit more um, complicated than that in the sense that, you know, when we talk about approval ratings, we tend to think, oh, we can just, you know, flip over to Gallup and see what they are. Um, I, I talk, uh, rather than talking about um, public opinion or public approval ratings, I try to talk more broadly about, uh, I, I use the phrase public engagement, um, because I think, uh, you know, just, you know, public approval ratings will certainly be sort of one part of that, but I think, um uh, it makes sense to to only sort of use them as as one part of that, but to also think about um, uh, the ways in which um, uh, sort of public trust can vary issue by issue uh, and can also vary in terms of the way that questions are framed, right? And so this is not a, a sort of new observation in the in, in you know in people who study uh, American politics, but. Um, uh, you know, if you ask people sort of what institution, if you ask people for the approval ratings of institutions, you might get one answer. Uh, on the other hand, if you ask people um, whose budget proposals do you prefer, uh, the, the Republican leadership in the House of Representatives or President Obama's, you might get a very different sort of breakdown. Um, uh, so, um, uh, so I think uh, it. You know, I, I want to. 
it is a question of how successfully the branches are engaging with the public, but it doesn't just boil down to sort of simply looking at, you know, approval numbers or something like that. Well, I, of course. And, and the two of the branches also have more means of communicating and engaging with the public than a third branch does. Um, because the judiciary generally doesn't tweet very much, from what I understand. Um, whereas, whereas the legislative branch of those elected to it, and of course our current president and previous president, um, do engage in different ways than than the judiciary has often the capacity to engage. Right. Um, and so I, I think that you know there is this question of not only the approval ratings or disapproval, um, but also, as you note, how the individual citizen engages with the three different branches of government and an understanding of what they do and how they operate. Um, Right. And I would, uh, you know, I would, I would say, um, you know, each of the, each of the branches, every sort of institutionally cited actor has a certain role morality and they're going to differ. And I, I tend to actually not like the sort of breaking down of, you know, the judiciary and the political branches because it suggests there's more, I think, uh, that, that that's where the real dividing line is. I think, you know, all uh, constitutional actors, all political actors, judges included, sort of have distinct role moralities. And just like you wouldn't expect to see a judge behave the same way you'd expect to see a member of the House behave, you also wouldn't expect to see a president behave the same way you expect to see a member of the House or the right. Senate. Um, uh, so I think, you know, um, the the distinct role moralities of each group is going to affect the ways in which they communicate with the public. Um, so obviously, you know, we don't expect to see Supreme Court justices tweeting. On the other hand, we don't expect to see, uh, you know, members of Congress playing dress up the way we expect j- judges to do. Right. right? You know, um, the, the wearing black robes is a form of communication. Right. It sends a certain message to the public um, and it's a message about the role of the court. It's a message uh, about sort of how they want judges to be perceived. Um, so they do have their own ways of communicating. It's just different than those uh, that other other institutionally cited actors have. Absolutely. Um, and, and this sort of moves into this question that you also pose within the book, or you set up a distinction of constitutional politics versus normal politics. Mm-hmm. And, and I would love for you to talk a little bit about the distinction here, especially, you know, as you've looked at the sort of historical analysis of the ways that the branches of government have engaged each other and the public over 200 years. That is a lot of, you know, what you sort of the meat of your book is about. Right. So um, the, the the terminology constitutional politics and normal politics is is borrowed from Bruce Ackerman. Um, but I use it in a in a slightly different way than he does. So for Bruce, um, uh, you know, normal politics is sort of the politics we see going on all the time. And then at special moments, he calls them constitutional moments, um, uh, there, there is this sort of heightened form of deliberation uh, that, that results in the articulation of new constitutional principles. And he regards that as constitutional politics. For me, both normal politics and constitutional politics are continuously ongoing phenomena. So normal politics would be uh, you know the, the, um, what we're used to thinking of as, as politics in any given moment. So, um, uh, you know, what should the rules uh, uh, governing healthcare be um, uh, in this country? That's a question of normal politics. Um, for me, constitutional politics, I guess, can best be thought of as meta politics. Uh, who gets to decide and under what decision mechanisms? Uh, the question of how will healthcare be regulated in this country? That would be a question of constitutional politics, right? That's a question of the, the, the distribution of decision-making authority over questions of normal politics. 
Um, and so I think that um, uh, you, you obviously can't separate constitutional politics from normal politics, right? The content of normal politics will be determined by the constitutional politics or will be partially determined by the constitutional politics. Um, and uh, constitutional politics always has to arise in the context of some question in normal politics. Um, but it is, I think, uh, you know, helpful theoretically at least to separate them out and to think in terms uh, both of the sort of uh, uh, first order policy question, which would be the normal politics, and then the, the second order question of who gets to decide and how. Um, uh, and my argument in the book is that both of these are actually constantly in the process of being worked out over time. Both of these are constantly in flux, um, uh, uh, constitutional politics just as much as normal politics. And you note that it's sort of an, an on a constant continuum um, mm -hmm. with regard to sort of the branches interacting with each other and with the public. Um, that the sort of there are times when one branch may have more authority or more voice and another branch may not. Mm -hmm. um, but that the multiplicity, as you note, in sort of understanding how they are interacting is key to um, sort of, as, as you also say, the messiness of the system that we have. Um, and I wanted to ask you also about this sort of question of legislative authority. Um, with regard to um, Congress's constitution um, and and the waxing, waning, occasional, as I would say, abdication of their sort of authority or responsibility. Um, and, and what do you see as the prospect of Congress sort of engaging more or less with its own authority? Right. So, you know, one of the, one of the themes of the book is that I think is that, that Congress is uh, – more engaged, perhaps, than we are than than many observers take it to be, right? So, um, you know, one of the classic stories about congressional abdication is the rise of the administrative state, uh, the the sort of number of policy areas that have been delegated to administrative agencies, and the amount of discretion within those areas that have been delegated, and that's all true. Uh, but it's also worth sort of noting that there's a great deal of of research about the ways in which um, uh, the behavior of administrative agencies is actually fairly responsive to congressional preferences. And that's because of all of these things that are, again, not legislation and therefore tend to fly below the radar, right? But, but um, uh, everything from, you know, per tugging on the purse strings through the appropriations process uh, to simply uh, calling in uh, agency leadership and yelling at them, which is not a pleasant thing for them. Um, uh, so, um, uh, there are, you know, even in things that look like a huge amount of discretion has been delegated, where a huge amount of discretion has indeed been delegated, that doesn't mean that Congress sort of isn't having a say over that process. Um, so that's part of it. But I want to be very clear, you know, the, 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 the thesis of this book is not, um, hey, Congress is doing a great job, everything's <laughs> wonderful. Right? The, 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 the sort of uh, uh, the, the, the core of the book is that Congress has all of these tools at various points in American history uh, in various ways. It has used uh, uh, each and every one of these tools. Uh, sometimes it uses them in ways that redound to its credit and therefore to its sort of long term power. In other times, it uses them in ways that actually wind up hurting itself um, in ways that actually uh, wind up decreasing its power vis-a-vis uh, uh, -vis the other branches and making it more likely uh, that the other branches will sort of get their way in future uh, uh, future conflicts. So um, uh, the um, 
I think the 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 sort of overall uh, uh, takeaway would be something like it's messy, it's complicated. <laughs> there have always been sort of issues that uh, uh, where Congress has delegate, delegated significant amounts of discretion. Um, you know, one of the things I note in the chapter on the power of the purse is that the very first appropriations statute in American history uh, is about one paragraph long. Uh, and and divides uh, all of federal spending into just four categories. Um, so the rest of it is up to uh, Washington and his cabinet, basically how it's going to spend within those four categories. Right. So there's always been discretion um, uh, over uh, that, that that Congress has delegated, and there have always been means by which Congress sort of exercises control. Uh, over the apparatus of the state. Uh, and so at any given moment, it's, it's inevitably going to be a mixture of those two things. Um, uh, so, um, you know, and, and what I would sort of uh, uh, say to observers of the political system is to be, um, is to look in a more fine-grained way than perhaps we're used to in trying to figure out uh, sort of what the mixture is of congressional control and congressional abdication at any given moment. And I think that's one of the, you make this sort of subtle point throughout the book with regard to the fact that a decision made by Congress or a decision made by the executive or a decision made by the judiciary um, can set up for the next decision and sort of the next potential power grab or abdication, depending on which way the decision goes. Right. And I and I found that to be a really interesting sort of thread that you that you wove through in terms of, you know, as you say, sort of table setting. But it's more than table setting in terms of the way that the branches then ultimately respond the next time around. Mm -hmm. That's different from precedent. Uh, well, it's um, right. I mean, I, I would describe it as as path dependence uh, with the understanding that path dependence is not absolute. Right. Path right. dependence is is one thing. You know, it, it, it alters the sort of uh, 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 landscape before you, you know, to, to stick with the metaphor of a path. Right. It, it sort of alters the, the, the road ahead. But it doesn't mean you can't sort of subsequently then deviate from that path. Um, uh I'm not, you know, in some sense, that's what precedent is too, right? Um, right. The the precedent isn't a sort of uh, thing that's out there that dictates future outcomes, right? Precedent is sort of material in the past that we decide in the present is relevant to some decision. Um, so, in some sense, I would I would uh, not draw a sort of hard line between um, uh, path dependence and and, and precedent. Um, uh, but I, you know, I think for all of these. Um, uh, uh, entities, it is um, you know uh, every every decision they're faced with, every action they take is shaped by uh, sort of the the their their developmental arc up to that moment, and that's why I think it's so important to talk about these things in in the context of their history uh, and in the context of a fairly uh, uh, long history at that. Yeah, and and I found that to be a really useful part of your book as well, the understanding of you know going back all the way to the founders of the founding period, but also sort of moving through the development of the administrative state um, and, you know, sort of American political development broadly understood. Um, so may I ask you, what are you working on now? <laughs> uh, well, it's, it's, um, it's funny that you mentioned precedent in your last question, because that is actually kind of what I'm working <laughs> on now. So I'm, I'm working on a, um, a, a shorter piece, a, a journal article on um, the, sort of suite of issues uh, sort of 
you could sort of describe it as the sort of uh, uh, Garland Gorsuch uh, end of the Supreme Court uh, filibuster uh, sort of suite of issues and trying to think about um, uh, trying to sort of think our way through that. Uh, and in particular, trying to think about um, uh, what, one of the interesting things I noted in um, looking at both the discourse coming out of Congress, but also the, the sort of scholarly discourse, the sort of immediate scholarly reactions to, to, uh, to all of this is that everybody on both sides at every moment is describing what the other side is doing as unprecedented. Um, and sometimes that's just disingenuous, uh, but sometimes it's actually, um, it, it, it's, it's based on a sort of very particular way of construing the past. Um, and, you know, you can describe just about anything as unprecedented if you describe the sort of relevant materials correctly, or you describe them in, in, in the sort of, uh, uh, with a certain degree of detail. Um, and so I'm interested in sort of, um, okay, suppose we wanted to sort of construct a usable past or even several usable pasts uh, for, uh, 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 out of these uh, this series of events. Um, so I, I sort of start out by talking about uh, the, the sort of arc from about 2004 to the present. So when um, uh, Democrats, during, or sorry, when Republicans during the Bush administration start talking about uh, invoking the nuclear option in 2004, sort of through the sort of second invocation of it with regard to uh, the Gorsuch confirmation. Uh, and then I go back and say, okay, let's think about these in sort of two contexts. Let's think about it in terms of the arc of um, uh, legislative obstruction uh, in American history, which is uh, a theme in, in uh, uh, the last chapter of the book. Um, and then uh, secondly, let's also think about it in terms of the arc of confirmation politics uh, in American history, which is the theme of uh, another chapter <laughs> of the book. Um, and, and sort of if we think about it in terms of those two arcs, sort of what does that, you know, what does that suggest? And, and um, it probably won't be a surprise at this point because, uh, uh, you know, as you can probably tell, my, my sort of immediate instinct is to try to contextualize everything. <laughs> but it doesn't seem to make, you know, that, that describing them as unprecedented, describing almost anything as unprecedented in either of those, con uh, in either of those contexts would be overstated. Um, so instead, I think it makes sense to sort of talk about it as sort of the culmination or the or, or sort of uh, the, the, the point where we are today as as one point on the on, on sort of longer running trends in uh, in both of those contexts. Uh, so that's the sort of and, you know, it's a little bit um, scattershot because I'm about a, a quarter of the way through writing it at the moment. So I'm. Uh, <laughs> Uh, haven't fully worked everything out, but that, that's that's what I'm working on now. So might that turn into a book as well, possibly? Ooh, uh, mm, maybe not. Anything could happen. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't. Uh, I'm not quite sure yet what the next book will be. Um, okay. I, I like to, you know, it was it was uh, it was about a decade between my first book and this book. I, I like to sort of um, uh, let things germinate as much as possible uh, before actually sitting down and deciding that they're they're going to become a book. And it sounds like you back into that a little bit too, as opposed to I think that's the, driving that's the forward. Thing about, yeah, I think that's the nicest thing about about uh, the sort of um, freedom of being a scholar is that you can sort of start working on things. You know, um, uh, themes can emerge to you that you know after you sometimes after I write two or three sort of articles, a, a theme will bubble out <laughs> of them that I didn't know I was putting into them, uh, and then that can be the sort of germ for for a bigger project. I. I I really enjoy those moments of serendipity. Well, I look forward to speaking to you again on the New Books Network when the next book germinates and, and moves forward. Um, and where can people get a copy of your book about um, Congress's Constitution? Uh, well, uh, 
Amazon or uh, <laughs> uh, or whatever uh, you know online bookseller of your choice. It's it's uh, or the Yale University Press webpage. Um, uh, uh, and of course, if people wanted to, you know, convince their local bookstore to to, to stock it, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't object. Yes, I think we 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 try to get local bookstores to put in our special requests for excellent books like yours, Josh. I really appreciate Thank you. you coming on to the New Books Network to talk about um, your book on on legislative authority and Congress's Constitution. Um, thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Lauren. Sure.